evening and welcome to the 460th episode of Travel It Radio. I'm your host, Dan Schlossberg, but Mary Ellen Nugent Lee is off tonight recuperating from an illness. We wish her well. This is the 11th season of Travel It Radio, the show that lets you enjoy the pleasures of travel from the comfort of your armchair. Every week at this time, we talk to people representing destinations, hotels, airlines, railroads, car rental companies, and others in the world of travel and hospitality, from authors and bloggers to broadcasters and publicists. If it's got anything to do with travel, it's got everything to do with Travel It Radio. And tonight, we're very pleased to welcome my longtime friend and colleague, Marty Appel, the author of Pinstripe Empire and more than a dozen other Yankees books, to Travel It Radio. Welcome, Marty. We're glad to have you. Great to be with you, Dan. Always. We go back a long way, and uh, I already love the show because of listening to Ricky Nelson sing Traveling Man. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. I like that kind of music too. Marty, today is Lou Gehrig Day throughout Major League Baseball. It is the anniversary of the day he died, which is June 2nd, 1941, and I believe the anniversary of the day he started his consecutive games playing streak. As a former Yankee publicist and as the author of Pinstripe Empire, would you say he might have been the most inspirational player in baseball history? I really do believe that, Dan. He was, uh, even to his teammates, when he was out there every day, uh, and players get hurt all the time. I mean, you foul foul a ball off your shin or off your foot and you're in pain, and you and I would want to go home. (laughs) He would just soldier on and be out there every day and it was inspiring to his great teammates to just, uh, you know, not slack off and to just follow his lead. Well, just so our listeners know, when Cal Ripken Jr. set the record for consecutive games played, he broke Lou Gehrig's mark of 2,130, but Gehrig did it without any interruptions caused by strikes or lockouts. In retrospect, does this streak seem even more remarkable now? Um, it doesn't take anything away from Ripken's accomplishments because, after all, after those work stoppages, he was older and maybe more susceptible to injury or having to sit down. So both both streaks get tremendous, uh, you know, accolades from me. I remember growing up, and I'm sure the same with you, people would talk about records that will never be broken, and Lou's playing streak was always on that list. So it was really yeah. a shock to the system to see Cal Ripken pass him. Since we're on a travel show, where can people find Lou Gehrig artifacts and learn more about his career? I know there are lots of them at the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, New York, even a 1942 New York State license plate used by Eleanor Gehrig. Yes, um, both uh, the Yankees Museum, which is a small museum, but it's beautifully curated by Brian Richards and it has great stuff, and they have a 1932 Yankee home jersey that uh, Lou Gehrig wore, and they have three bats that he used, and the Baseball Hall of Fame has a ton of stuff, including the trophy that was presented to Lou on Lou Gehrig Day, July 4th, 1939. So all the newsreels, when you see his luckiest man speech, they show him receiving that trophy, and there it is in Cooperstown. Marty, you have great connections at the Baseball Hall of Fame and once put together a weekend honoring Jewish ballplayers that I thoroughly enjoyed. Since you know the Hall of Fame so well, what other exhibits would Yankee fans enjoy the most, starting with the Babe Ruth display? 
Well, Babe Ruth's display includes his uh, locker, which was a steel metal uh, locker painted red with his number three and the name Ruth on the door. And that's a beautiful thing to behold. Um, Gehrig had a matching one, uh, which the Hall of Fame also has. And the two of them, those two lockers, stayed in the Yankee clubhouse after their playing careers uh, as part of the clubhouse. I mean, they were unoccupied lockers with their names on them, and all the contemporary Yankees would see them every day. Eventually, they were moved to Cooperstown. Um, So early on, baseball fans knew Ruth and Gehrig artifacts were really collectible, even before there was such thing as a collectibles marketplace. Marty, you already referred to the museum inside Yankee Stadium. I agree with you. It's very, very well done. How well is Lou Gehrig represented there? He's well represented. They have a number of artifacts, which surprised me, frankly, because the museum was only created when the the current Yankee Stadium opened in 2009. And by 2009, it was pretty hard to get really valuable stuff. Uh, You know, collectors who owned these things wanted to sell them at auction and make tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars. But uh, Brian Richards was able to curate them and get them for the Yankee Museum, and it's free to anybody who's attending a Yankee game. Uh, It's on the second level and near the 200 sections, and uh, it's just a marvel to walk through. We should also talk about Monument Park at Yankee Stadium. Once you're in the stadium, that's free as well, isn't it? Yeah, you, um, during batting practice, you've got to get there pretty early. But it's breathtaking. It's awesome. Um, you know, you see it in the distance on televised games. But to get up close to those monuments and plaques, uh, it really just makes your heart beat fast to realize all those legends out there. And when you're talking Yankees, you're talking the ultimate baseball legends, Ruth, Gehrig, Joe DiMaggio, Mickey Mantle, and on up through Derek Jeter and Mariano Rivera. And going back in Yankee history, which you are an expert in, weren't those monuments originally in fair territory? They were. In the original Yankee Stadium, the one that opened in 1923, the distance to deep center field was so far that it wasn't considered threatening in any way to interfere with the ball in play. So you had the flagpole out there, you had the PA address speakers out there, and you had three monuments on the field, the very first three, which were Miller, Huggins, Babe Ruth, and Lou Gehrig. And very, very, very seldom did they ever come into play. Although one day in 1970, chasing a long drive, Bobby Mercer had to run through the monuments to retrieve the ball. <laughs> that's, that's a real good anecdote. I like that. And I, I love the Yogi Berra Museum and Learning Center in Little Falls, New Jersey. Does it also have Gehrig artifacts? Um, I'm not aware of Gehrig artifacts there. Um, it's a beautiful museum. It's well worth visiting, um, but I'm not immediately aware of any Gehrig artifacts there. We're talking with Marty Appel, who's a Yankee historian, author of how many books altogether, Marty? Uh, 24. 
Wow, that's fantastic. Are they all on Yankees, or are they other things, other things too? Other things too, but I've come to be identified with the Yankees, which is not a bad thing. <laughs> uh, most of them are somewhat Yankee-related. And I've got to tell our listeners, you are the only person who's written both a biography and an autobiography of Thurman Munson. Well, I'm probably the only one besides Al Stump to have done that for anybody. Al Stump wrote Ty Cobb's autobiography with him and then a much discredited biography of Cobb, sorry to say. So I did a... Autobi- uh, Thurman Munson's autobiography with him in 1977, and then in 2009 I did a biography. Uh, so it puts me in the company of Al Stump, which isn't a good place to be, because his his second book, the biography of Cobb, has been much discredited. Okay, New York Sports Tours is a great company. We both worked for them. They have a way of finding hidden baseball history all around New York. And Garrett was a New Yorker, even playing for Columbia University. Have you been with them and looked for Garrett artifacts with them? I haven't been with them, but I've been involved in uh, street sign dedications at his birthplace. And interestingly, he was born in 1903, and that was the same year the New York Yankees were born. They were called the Highlanders then, but they grew up together. Uh, The Highlanders started in Washington Heights. Lou Gehrig was in Upper Manhattan. And uh, I always found it interesting that he was born the year the franchise was born. That is a very good anecdote as well. And I want to tell our listeners that you are listening to Travel Witch Radio, now in our 11th season with Dan Schlossberg and normally co-host Mary Ellen Nugent-Lee, who's on the aisle tonight. Check us out on iTunes or blogtalkradio.com or visit the Travel It Radio Facebook page. And our guest tonight is author and Yankees historian Marty Appel. Marty, lots of former stars like Yogi and Bob Feller have museums dedicated to their careers. But would you say that Gary was probably too modest to do that? I would say he would have been too modest, but it wasn't being done at the time. Remember, he died in 1941. And those things weren't a reality yet. Um, But, yes, he was a self-effacing, very modest person. I suppose if somebody had come to him and presented the idea as something that could be charitable and fundraising for a worthy charity, he might have gone along with that. Um, He probably gave a lot of his stuff to his parents. He was very devoted to them, and they outlived him. And to his wife, Eleanor, who, for people who've watched Pride of the Yankees, the Gary Cooper movie, uh, you know, you can feel the relationship, the love relationship there between Lou and Eleanor. Uh, Teresa Wright, the actress, played Eleanor Gehrig, and I did come to know her uh, later in her life. To her, it was just another movie. She made like three or four years. She was a contract player. And so at the time she made the film, she went and did her lines and then moved on to the next project. Only over the years did she come to realize the importance of that movie and the affection that people hold for for that film. And speaking of the Yogi Berra Museum, she attended an event there one year, and I had the privilege of driving her back to Manhattan after the event. 
So we had a lot of time to talk. And only in those years, and I'm talking about the 1990s, did she come to, uh, to uh, fully appreciate the Yankees and American, culture, American cultural history. And uh, she became a Yankee fan. She would watch the games. She would occasionally attend the games. So that was a delight that late in life that all kicked in for her. Very nice. Getting back to Garrick, he won a triple crown and was the first American leaguer to hit four home runs in a game. But was he overlooked because he played with Babe Ruth? Sure. Babe Ruth would overshadow anything. Um, but that was okay for Gehrig. He wasn't in it for the ego, and he happily stood aside and let Babe enjoy the spotlight. And Lou was just a working guy uh, who went out there and did his job day after day after day. And everybody admired him. So, you know, when I was a little kid in the 50s, one of the first books I read was Lou Gehrig, A Quiet Hero by the great sports writer Frank Graham. And I so enjoyed that book. I probably read it multiple times. I probably did three or four book reports on it in elementary school. And that <laughs> was very instrumental in getting me interested in baseball and becoming a Yankee fan. In your book, Pinstripe Empire, you write that Garrett was everything Ruth wasn't, quiet, soft-spoken, humble, and reserved. How did the two of them get along? Um, they got along okay. Sometimes the wives would feud and they would have to take sides. So there would be some strains in the relationship. But they had the same agent. He got them a lot of appearances in the off season. They barnstormed with the team, the uh, Boston Babes and the Larrup and Lou's. So they got along fine in that sense. And the fact that Lou Gehrig did not have a big ego uh, certainly helped them get along. They weren't butting heads over who should, who should be getting more attention. Where does Lou Gehrig rate in Marty? Was he the greatest first baseman of all time? Well, I think he was. Um, and I'd really put him in the top five baseball players of all time with Ruth, with Cobb, maybe with Honus Wagner, maybe with Ted Williams. Um, so, yeah, he's definitely very high uh, in my regard. One of the things I uncovered in doing some research on Lou Gehrig was that he and Babe Ruth both bunted multiple times in 1927. That can never happen today, can it? Wouldn't happen today. And Gehrig also stole home a lot, like 21 times or something like that in his career. Could you imagine? So wow. uh, they played the game differently back then. Had he lived, would Lou Gehrig have been a good manager in your opinion? Well, I think so, um, whatever characteristics it took. I mean, the first criteria for a good manager is to have good players. Uh, so had he stayed with the Yankees, he would have been blessed with good players all along. Uh, but had he gone to another team, there's no telling whether he would have had any success. Uh, the players come first. He certainly had the knowledge to run a baseball game, make out a lineup, handle a pitching staff, uh, strategize a game. But in the end, it's, you know, you look at the rosters of the teams that go to the World Series and you say, well, they belonged, they belonged, they had all these good players. We're talking tonight with author and Yankees historian Marty Appel. Marty, Lou 
Derek died in 1941 before either of us were born. But from what we know, is it fair to say he was a great teammate, but even better family man? I know, as you mentioned, he was close to his mother and even fluent in her native German. That's true. He was uh, thought of by some as kind of a mama's boy, and he lived with his parents for a very long time as a player. And he finally met Eleanor, who was sort of a, you know, a flapper from the Roaring Twenties and a little fast for what Mama Gehrig would have liked for Lou. <laughs> but um, she won his heart, and they married. They lived in um, Larchmont, where I lived for a long time, right near the train station on Chatsworth Avenue. And that's where he was living when he came down with ALS. And he got a job at that time with the New York City Parole Board. And cruel as though it sounds, uh, the job required that the people reside in the five boroughs. So despite his illness, the city required that he move to the five boroughs. So he moved to Riverdale and that's where he died in 1941. On Jackie Robinson Day, every April 15th, all the players wear Jackie's number 42. Would you like to see players wear Gehrig's number four on Lou Gehrig Day, which is today? And do you think Major League Baseball is doing enough to honor his memory? Well, it's good that they stepped up today and created a Lou Gehrig Day. This is the first one. I thought the patches that the players wore in their uniforms today were a little cheesy, but uh, far be it from me to critique the, uh, the decor of the uniform. So maybe they pick up the game, their game next year with a better patch or a better resemblance. In terms of uh, everybody wearing a number four, yeah, I wouldn't have a problem with it. I'm not out there advocating it because I know when everybody wears 42 on Jackie Robinson Day, it's just hard to tell who everybody is, especially when the scoreboard, the scoreboard shows the out-of-town games and all the pitchers are 42, and it's, help, I can't <laughs> deal with this. <laughs> Good point. Well, a lot of the uniforms, not the Yankees, though, but a lot of teams have their names on the back of the uniform, so that helps somewhat. But some teams that don't. Help, the Yankees don't. I, the Milwaukee Brewers, I think, are another one. The Dodgers, I think, maybe – at least in a home well, game for the Dodgers. There are certain things about the Yankees that are pure Yankees. And when they were one of the few teams that didn't have cardboard cutouts during the 2020 season in the stands, I thought, well, that's to be expected. They're the Yankees. Yes. Marty, our listeners would love to know a little bit more about your background. I knew you were PR director for the Yankees, and you worked for WPIX Channel 11 in New York and wrote a bunch of terrific books. Can you talk about some of your books? What was your favorite book? Um, my favorite book was Pinstripe Empire, which is the full history of the team back to 1903. And just last year, it was updated in its ebook Kindle edition through the 2020 season. So I'm happy to continue to take notes, and I'm prepared for future updates as well. But if you like history, and if you like Yankee history in particular, <coughs> excuse me, that's, um, that's sort of been recognized as the definitive Yankee history until something else comes along. I did... Uh, no, I certainly think it is. Thank you. What about some of your other books? You mentioned the Munson of, books. 
Yeah, I did Thurman Munson's um, autobiography and then biography in 2009, and that was a bestseller. And then I did a biography of Casey Stengel, baseball's most colorful character in history, which came out in 2017 and was very well received because of Casey, because he is such a colorful figure and um, lots of laughter on those pages. I still see plenty of Lou Gehrig jerseys at Yankee Stadium, so he's certainly not forgotten. And fans can honor that memory with a donation to the ALS Society. That's a myotropic lateral sclerosis. That was the neurological disease that killed him at such a young age. In fact, it's still often called Lou Gehrig's disease. Are you involved with ALS at all? I've done PR for the New York City chapter of ALS Foundation. Um, The sad thing is, it's almost hard to say this, Lou died in 1941 of ALS. Now we're in 2022. Nothing has changed in all these years. If he got ALS today, he would have the same fate and the same time span. Oh, and a lot of famous people have died of it as well. Senator Jacob Javits, I think, was one. I think David Niven had it. Yes, and Catfish Hunter. I thought Catfish died of diabetes, no? No, he had diabetes, but he got ALS and um, was effectively disabled, but he hadn't yet succumbed to a wheelchair, and he was walking at his home in North Carolina when he lost his balance and fell, hit his head on the concrete, and died from that. Oh, I didn't know that. Sorry to hear. We're talking tonight with author and Yankees historian Marty Fell. Marty, is there anything that I haven't asked you that you would like to add? I was going to add the ALS stuff and really encourage people to make a contribution to this. It's not like cancer. It's not like heart disease. So not that many people get it. And because of that, donations are few. People contribute if they know somebody with ALS. Lou Gehrig is kind of a poster boy for it, and the New York chapter bears his name. But out of the kindness of your heart, if you'd make a contribution, even if it's not something you're familiar with or have any family members or friends with it, it's a, it's a disease that should have had a cure a long time ago, but the lack of funding sets it back uh, because people aren't inclined to just make a contribution to ALS. So I would encourage you to look up the ALS Foundation and make a small contribution just in Lou Gehrig's memory. Marty, you and I sat and talked for quite a while during the Yankees opener this year. I also went to the Mets opener. Do you think we might have another Subway Series this year? It looks that way, doesn't it? How exciting would that be? Um, So, yeah, I'm I'm all for it. How do you think the Yankees are, are, are doing and going to do? Well, they're doing almost as well as they've ever done in the whole history of the team. Um, and you have to sit back and remind yourself it's a long season. There's going to be some some dry spots in there, too. But for now, they just keep rolling along. The pitching staff is great. Uh, awesome hitters once they're all in the lineup at the same time. It's hard yes. to find a flaw with this team. You just have to remind yourself, nobody is perfect from beginning to end. 
So it's how they deal with a downtime and how other teams capitalize on it that remains to be seen. As a fellow baseball observer, I think the Yankees improved the most by improving their defense at catcher and shortstop. Do you agree? Yeah, it's hard to imagine that you can go to a World Series with catchers who don't hit home runs. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, and shortstop, they're managing. Kiner Falefa is better than I expected, and they can win with Kiner Falefa. But I think they have to upgrade the catching. Okay. Our guest tonight has been Marty Appel, author of Pinstripe Empire and many other Yankees books. Thanks, Marty, for being our guest on Travelage Radio. Always a pleasure to talk to you, Dan. Thank you. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Talk to you soon. See you at the ballpark. Okay. Okay. And if you don't have it yet, this is a fine time to acquire my book, The New Baseball Bible, Notes, Nuggets, Lists, and Legends from Our National Pastime. 480 pages for less than a sawbuck. It's both a coffee table book and a bathroom book. Read it backwards and still enjoy it. That's the new baseball Bible with Mike Trout on the cover. Get it tonight on Amazon.com. And by the way, with Father's Day coming up, any Marty Appel book is great to consider buying and also the new baseball Bible. And that's it for this edition of Travel It Radio. Next week, same time, same station, same writer, same announcer, will travel to Mexico to visit the beautiful Fairmont Mayacona. Now, this is Dan Schlossberg, unfortunately without co-host Muriel and Nugent Lee, who's recuperating, saying thank you for your time this time. Until next time, good night and stay safe. <laughs>